From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Every once in a while, you come upon a mystery that instead of involving a person, involves an object. One such object, a manuscript written in what appears to be an unknown language or code and covered in strange illustrations, has baffled scholars for hundreds of years. The manuscript I'm referring to is called the Voynich Manuscript. On this week's episode, I discuss what it could be and exactly who wrote it with manuscript expert Dr. Lisa Fagan Davis. Dr. Davis is a professor of practice in manuscript studies at the Simmons Graduate School of Library and Information Science and executive director of the Medieval Academy of America. Welcome to this week's mystery, the Voynich Manuscript on From the Void. Right. Welcome to the podcast this week. I have with me Dr. Lisa Fagan Davis. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we I have you on because you have a very specific kind of background and expertise. So tell the listeners a little bit about what it is that you do. Sure. I am what's called a paleographer and a codicologist, which means that I study ancient handwriting and ancient books. So looking at the not uh, obviously reading the text, but also the physical evidence of books that have survived over, uh, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years. So books from the medieval period that have survived to the present day, uh, almost like archaeology, looking at uh, at a physical artifact uh, for the for the clues to its origin and history. Which, which is fascinating because that makes you uniquely qualified uh, for the subject that we're going to talk about today, which is the Voynich Manuscript. So before we get into too deeply into what this document is, uh, where did we find this? Like, who, who came across it initially? Who, you know, who discovered it and, and when? So the reason it's called the Voynich Manuscript is because it was made, um, made known to the world by a rare book dealer named Wilfred Voynich, who bought it from Jesuits, the Jesuit community outside of Rome in 1912. So that's why it's called the Voynich Manuscript. It's named after him, but it's had other names throughout the years. He obviously didn't start out calling it the Voynich Manuscript. <laughs> he called it the Roger Bacon Manuscript because he was convinced that it had been written uh, by Roger Bacon, the 13th century English um, scholar. Uh, before it was owned by Voynich, it was in the hands of the Jesuits for several hundred years previous to that. Um, I can start at the beginning, if you'd like. That's That'd be great. probably easier than, yeah, than working backwards. <laughs> so the manuscript first uh, appears uh, in the historic record when it was acquired by Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II in the late 16th century. We don't know precisely when, uh, but sometime during his reign, so maybe in the 1570s, 1580s. 
Uh, he is thought to have acquired it, perhaps from um, uh, another uh, English astrologist and astronomer, John Dee. That's fairly tenuous, that connection. It's really not, um, there's not a whole lot of evidence to support that other than uh, circumstantial evidence. And we actually don't have any solid evidence that Rudolph himself actually owned the manuscript. We think he owned it because someone wrote a letter a hundred years later um, when he gave, was um, a scholar named Johannes Marcus Markey in Prague owned the manuscript in the 1660s and gave it to Athanasius Kircher, in, who was a Jesuit scholar, very well-known Jesuit scholar in Rome uh, in 1665. And so in a letter that Markey wrote with the manuscript when he just sent it off to Kircher in Rome, he, just, he says, this manuscript was purchased by Emperor Rudolf II, who then gave it to this person and this person and this person until uh, it came into Markey's hands. Markey couldn't read it. Nobody could read it. No one knew what it was. But it looked um, to Markey as if it might be related to Egyptian hieroglyphs. And Kircher had just published a dictionary of Egyptian hieroglyphs. And so... Markey thought that if anyone was going to be able to read this manuscript, it would be Athanasius Kircher. Uh, but no, he couldn't read it either. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just stayed in the hands of the Jesuits and, and it was not studied. It just sort of disappeared into a library um, until Voynich, on a shopping trip, uh, was just wandering around this um, Jesuit compound and found it along with lots of other manuscripts and books that he wanted to buy. And he just kind of piled them all in a, in a group and said, I'll give you this amount of money for, for say all of these books and manuscripts. And they said, sure, we need the money. Go right ahead. Uh, and so that's how he ended up with the manuscript. He knew, he recognized it as being something really unique and really unusual. And he thought that he could somehow um, purvey the, the uniqueness and the presumably the notoriety of this manuscript, if he could build up enough uh, gossip about it and enough conversation in the media, he's basically working social media a hundred something years ago, that he would be able to sell it for a hundred thousand dollars. And he could not sell it. When he died, it was one of the few things he still had left of his business after the depression. Uh, he, his company went out of business after his death in 1931, his wife and their assistant and Nil basically dismantled the business until all they had left was the Voynich manuscript and no one would buy it because nobody knew what it was. Nobody could read it. No one understood the images. And so some people thought it was a forgery that Voynich himself had created uh, Voynich had tried to promote this idea that it had been written by Roger Bacon, and he had a, a scholar from the University of Pennsylvania, um, Newbold, William Newbold, who studied the manuscript and, and agreed. He believed also that it had been written by Roger Bacon. It, it, uh, it, it's not written by Roger Bacon, I can, <laughs> I can guarantee you. But that name made such a splash worldwide when they started to promote the manuscript in the 1920s, 
uh, that they got all this publicity about it. It was, you know, written up in newspapers all over the world. And Voynich was sure that he was going to be able to sell it because of this. But unfortunately, Newbold's theory was trashed by scholars. Uh, he was really the first person to put out a Voynich theory that was then trashed publicly. Uh, he said, I'm the first in a long line of Voynich theorists to have their work publicly um, debunked. And so Voynich couldn't sell it. Then his wife inherited it. She couldn't sell it. After her death, Anne Nill, their assistant, inherited it in 1960. She couldn't sell it. And eventually she finally consigned it to a New York book dealer, Hans P. Krauss, and he couldn't sell it. And then in 1968, he said, I've had enough of this. I'm just going to give it to a university so other people can study it. And so he gave it to Yale and it's been there ever since. Wow. So, so early on, did the Jesuits have some notion that it might be, you know, like a religious or holy text? Is that why they, they had it or just they collected no. lots of stuff? <laughs> uh, they had it because Kierker had it and he was a Jesuit. So it, it sort of stayed with his papers as his papers and documents moved into larger collections. We actually have no idea what anyone in the Jesuit community thought about it, whether they thought it was rubbish or they thought it was, you know, it's, it's, it does have some erotic elements. So whether they thought it was something to be hidden or whether they thought it was uh, mm. some kind of religious allegory, uh, we just have no idea. Nobody wrote anything about it. And, and we don't even know what Kierker thought about it. Uh, you know, we just have no sense of what happened to it once it got to Rome, except that it stayed there until 1912 when uh, when Voynich bought it. So bef before we get into some of the theories, because there's lots of different theories as to uh, what it could be, uh, describe for folks and we'll put we'll put photos up as well. But describe for folks, what is this? What does this document look like? First of all, what what is it written on and, and kind of what what makes it so unique? So um the, the Voynich manuscript is in many ways a typical medieval manuscript. It's written on parchment. It's comprised of um, pages, very, you know, uh, pages of parchment that are folded in half to create two leaves. And those are stacked up and sort of sewn through the middle the way as a kid you might make a book. And that's how medieval manuscripts are made. And then each of those groupings is stacked up and sewn together and um, attached to some kind of a cover. So in, in many ways, it's very typical. It's constructed the way a medieval manuscript would be constructed. Uh, where things get really weird is when you actually look at it, because first of all, it's written in a, a um, using a series of symbols that are completely unique and completely unintelligible um, so far. Um, some would argue with me. There are people out there who claim they can read it, but I'm not, I, have not, I have yet to be convinced by anyone who claims that they know how to read Voynichese is what it's called. Uh, and it's, it does have a, it has alphabetic qualities in that it has a, a set number of these glyphs. There are you know, it, sometimes it's hard to know whether you're looking at two different glyphs or, or variants or, or one scribe writes it slightly differently than the other. But there's around 30 of these symbols. Some symbols tend to appear at the end of words. Some symbols tend to appear near the beginning. There are 
symbols that appear in combination um, and other symbols that are never found next to one another. So it has rules that govern it the way that a language has rules. And linguists have been trying for decades to figure out whether it is um, some a, a code of some kind, whether it is a phonemic transcription of a spoken language, or whether it's just um, a, a language written using a, this different series of symbols, uh, as opposed to a known alphabet. And we just don't know. That's, you know, that's the big, that's the big question, right? That's the $25,000 question. What, what is the text? Like, what kind of a text is this? So that's the first big mystery, is that all of the best computing power in the world has been applied to this manuscript, including the people who work for the NSA. Uh, you know, some of the cryptologists who uh, have worked, who worked on the Enigma, on decrypting the Enigma machine, worked on this manuscript in the 1940s. Wow. And no one has ever been able to satisfactorily uh, untangle it and, and actually read this text. So that's the first thing. And then you have these, uh, these images. So the first part of the manuscript um, looks like a typical medieval uh, herbal, a botanical collection, where each page has a, a drawing of a plant and some text. And in a typical Latin herbal, what you would find is a drawing of a plant with an explanation of how to take care of it, how, describing it, what its medicinal uses might be. So the assumption is that that's what's happening in the first, it's, I think it's about 56, 57 leaves of the manuscript. You have one plant per page with some text. So it, what it should be, whether it is that, I couldn't tell you, but what it seems like it probably is, is a, a botanical. So a description of all these different plants. The problem is that the plants don't look like anything we can identify. A lot of people have tried. Um, that's one angle that, 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 that people have taken uh, with this manuscript is try and identify what these plants are and then see what part of the world those plants belong to. And that might help us to figure out where the manuscript comes from. But very few of the plants are reliably identifiable. So they're either written, they're either drawn badly or they're made up or they're just from some part of the world that the, the plant life isn't well documented uh, from the, the 15th century. So that's the first part of the manuscript. Then you have uh, in the, the next part of the manuscript are, is this whole section that is um, astronomical and astrological with these round diagrams that have the signs of the zodiac very clearly identifiable in the center. Uh, and someone slightly later than the origin of the manuscript, so a few decades later, went in and wrote the names of the months. Uh, in some kind of a romance language. Um, and so, so that comes next. Astrology, then there are sort of these star pages that are also these round diagrams that look like maybe some kind of uh, astronomical charts. Then you have um, 
the next section, which is uh, generally known as the balneological section. So that that seems like maybe it has something to do with the medieval practice of medicinal bathing, because it has all of these um, waterworks and waterways diagrams all throughout the, that weave in and out of the text. And then you have all of these um, these pools in which uh, naked women are bathing. Uh, so you have this section of the manuscript where it's all um, naked women bathing in pools. And there are people who like to interpret that in, in an erotic way, but I, I don't think it is. I, uh, it seems to have something maybe to do with gynecology, obstetrics, women's health, maybe, um, just based on the, the iconography and the images. And then uh, towards the, as we get towards the back of the book, you have what appear to be maybe recipes where you have some kind of a, um, of a vase or, or some kind of a, a vessel for holding things, and then a whole bunch of little drawings of plants. So that maybe seems like they're recipes, maybe. Um, and then the very last section is just text with little stars setting off the paragraphs. And no one has any idea what that, what that is. The, the manuscript is divided into these really clear sections based on the, um, the visual iconography, based on the, the images. And when you put them all together, so botanicals, recipes, balneology, astronomy, astrology, it feels like, and I always say that because I, I, I'm not gonna say is, uh, it feels like some kind of a scientific compendium, um, perhaps for the use of a, a wise woman, a midwife, a, 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 a wandering physician. It, it, that's, that's what it feels like. But what it is, is we won't know until we can read the damn thing. <laughs> there, and therein lies the mystery. So, um, yeah. One thing I want to comment on that you mentioned earlier is that someone, it appears that some alterations were made uh, later, you know, they, they added in the months. And I also read, and maybe you can clarify this, that perhaps color was added later too, like they had added color into some of the illustrations. Could be, yeah. There, there's some evidence that some of the, some of the coloring was added uh, sometime later than the manuscript. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to know that for sure. Uh, there are pages that have that are, so for example, one of the zodiac pages has quite a lot of color in it, and none of the others do. So that could have been added later. It also could have been that it was just incomplete that the other pages weren't decorated the same way. So I'm I'm not sure about that, but there's no question that the the pages now are um, are somewhat out of order. They're not in the correct or the sequence that they should have been in in the first place. And there's lots of evidence uh, for that. The, the manuscript has definitely been fiddled around with several times. It's been rebound at least twice, and the pages are out of order. Um, and that's a problem, too, as far as reading the manuscript. If we don't know what order the pages go in, that makes it a little bit of a trick also <laughs> yeah. to read the thing. Uh, you know, we the the manuscript has page numbers, uh, foliation, but that was added probably in the 17th century. It's quite late, um, and it was done after the manuscript was put in the wrong order. And then, since that time, several pages have gone missing. So the the 
there's quite a lot um, to be said about the physical history of the manuscript in terms of when, how it was rebound and why and, and what the original order might be and how we can try to recover the original order uh, by looking at the physical evidence. Uh, you know, when you, with a medieval manuscript, and, and you sometimes see that today, when a, when a uh, like if you did a, a, a painting and you put it inside a book and you closed it before your watercolor was dry, when you opened it, you would get a, an inverted version of the, of the wet paint. And that happens in medieval manuscripts, and it happens in the Voynich, that you have these offsets um, that are some of the evidence that can help you figure out what the original order of the pages might be. Um, but there are some, there are pages missing too. So that, that adds to the complexity of trying to work with the physical evidence to, to untangle the original sequence of the pages. Yet it seems that if, if someone somewhere along the way added at least months in, it, it kind of makes you wonder if at some point someone knew how to, to read this, this document. Well, someone must've known at some, some time, right? Somewhere, somebody, well, I mean, unless it's gibberish, it could be nonsense. It could be meaningless. It could be just, you know, but I, and there are people who, who try to make that case. I'm, I'm not convinced by that. It, it has a lot of order to it. It has a lot of, um, underlying, um, meaning, um, in terms of the, the, the different sections and the illustrations, I would be very surprised if it turns out to just be random gibberish. I, I really think that there's, that there's underlying meaning. We just don't know the key yet to unlock what the, what the text means. Um, there's, there's so much, um, there, well, for one thing, I've made the argument that there were five people who wrote the manuscript, so five different scribes. And that's, that's really my particular field of expertise. That's what paleography is. It's the study of handwriting, of ancient handwriting. And by applying my methodologies that I use with other manuscripts to this manuscript, I was able to identify five different scribes, which means at some point there were at least five people who knew how to write Voynichese and who knew what they were doing. Um, but there are also real differences in the way Voynichese is used by the scribes, which is also another weird question. It's like they're, they're, they have different dialects or slightly different ways of writing the language. Um, and that's something that, that linguists are, are digging into right, right at this very moment. That's so interesting. So what, what are some of the, the tests and, and some of the things that have been done to, you know, obviously they, they were able to date it at some point. Have they, have they studied the ink to see if the, the ink, you know, was derived from certain areas of like Europe or, you know, parts of the world? Like what if, what kind of things yeah. have they done? So they've done carbon-14 dating on the parchment. Uh, and that's, um, that gets you about a, a 30 year window for when the animal was killed. So that's when the animal was slaughtered. That's when the, it stops breaking down. And so that's, you know, molecularly. So that's how you can use carbon-14 dating to tell you when the animal was slaughtered. And for the Voynich, it gets us, I believe, at the 95% probability somewhere between 1404 and 1435. So a 30-year window. Uh, but that's only about 
when the parchment was created. It's, is it possible that the parchment sat around for 600 years until Wilfred Voynich found it and forged a manuscript on top of it? It's possible. It's really, really, really unlikely. Um, and the same goes for the ink. So the, the inks and the pigments. So the ink that you write with is um, a, an ink that is um, uh, very heavily uh, infused with, uh, with iron. So it's a, um, and it's, it's, the recipes for medieval ink are such that the ink um, bites into the parchment. Uh, and so it, it doesn't um, slide off the surface. It adheres. That's how it adheres to, like molecularly adheres to the parchment. And the testing that was done, um, you, can't, you can't do carbon-14 testing on, on inks and pigments. You do use different kinds of tests to look at the, um, the mineral composition of the inks and the colors. And unfortunately, they're, they're fairly common. So it doesn't really help to narrow down geographically where the manuscript comes from. Um, it's a, you know, it's your, your classic iron gall ink and the, the pigments, the colors are um, the same kind of mineral botanical pigments that you would find anywhere. Um, so unfortunately, that's not very helpful. There are other tests that they could do, but um, it's damaging to the manuscript and extremely expensive. The manuscript is very fragile. Uh, so I'm, I, I would be surprised if the Beinecke ever agreed to do more mineral uh, testing on the manuscript. They might do more um, imaging of the manuscript, which, for example, when... Um, one of the things about iron gall ink is that if it fades away or if it's scraped off of the page, it leaves a residue that, that you can read under ultraviolet light. And so they've done some of that kind of imaging to read, for example, there's an erased inscription on the first page of the manuscript that you can read under ultraviolet light. Uh, that's the, uh, one of the previous owners before uh, Markey. Um, and so there's that kind of imaging you can do, um, X-ray fluorescence or multispectral imaging, uh, in addition to the carbon-14 dating and then um, the uh, analysis of the pigments and the inks. All of which has come combined so far to tell us that it's from the early 15th century. It's probably from um, north, somewhere north of the Mediterranean um, and, and maybe to the east. Probably I wouldn't bet my life on it, but I think that's that it's likely either from um, Central Europe or somewhere on the northern coast of the Mediterranean. Just looking stylistically, that's um, it could be from further north. It could be from Germany, but um, it's just hard to it's hard to say without more um, without more textual evidence. If we could identify the source language that uh, was being transcribed or encoded, that would, of course, help. Um, and that's where the linguists come in. That's their job. My, my feelings about the origin of the manuscript are based on um, art historical evidence, so the, the style of the images and the, the color scheme in particular is very um, 
is very typical of what you might find in Italy or uh, in along the Mediterranean, maybe a little bit north of there, maybe into Eastern Europe or Germany. Uh, but and the 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 manuscript first comes first appears in the historic record in Prague at the court of Rudolf II, and then it goes to Rome and it stays there until it goes to the United States. So in that milieu of kind of Italy, uh, the Czech Republic, or Austria, Germany, and that that kind of zone is what it is what it feels like art historically. Um, and in terms of the history, that that feels right. Uh, there's I've seen an argument made for an origin in Turkey. I've seen arguments made for an origin in Italy. I've seen Germany. Um, there's also people who who claim that it's from Mesoamerica, which is next to impossible, or um, India, or uh, that it's Asian. The, the script clearly reads from left to right, so that, that helps kind of uh, in terms of thinking about the, the linguistic milieu. Uh, it definitely reads from left to right. You can, you can tell that from looking at the formatting, that there are enlarged letters at the beginning of paragraphs, and they're in the upper left corner of the, of the paragraph. So it definitely, and it's, it's um, uh, it is, it has a straight margin on the left and a kind of ragged margin on the right. So, so that suggests that it definitely is a language that reads from left to right, top to bottom. So that helps uh, in terms of thinking about the origins of the manuscript as well. Um, so that's, that's kind of where, where, I'm, where I'm at. But I, I would put the manuscript in the early 15th century for sure. Um, I don't see any reason not to not to agree with that, uh, uh, with that timetable. So I know there have been plenty of claims, uh, spanning from reasonable and, and, you know, potentially possible to absolutely absurd and everything in between. So Mm -hmm. in, in your estimation, what are the most likely possibilities as to what this manuscript is? So I, I have become kind of a, a, a Voynich debunker in my old age. So I tend to be very um, cynical about any claim that uh, the manuscript has been translated or read or interpreted in some way. Um, in part because most people who, who are working on the manuscript are um, come to it uh, as fans of the manuscript and come to it by saying, oh, I had, I had a dream, I had a vision, I, I looked at it for five minutes and I immediately knew what it was. Um, uh, oh and their, that work is almost always based, and, and it, that could happen, right? I mean, it could happen that you happen to look at it and you have a eureka moment and you, you can figure out what it says. That's possible. Um, but most of those, most of the translations and proposed solutions out there are grounded on assumptions that are fundamentally flawed. And that's the real problem, is that someone comes into it and says, well, I think that word has to mean leaf. And then I'm going to go from there. And by the time you get all the way down the road, you forget that you started with this assumption 
that was just guesswork. And you might have ended up with the right solution. It's possible, but I need to, I need to know what those fundamental assumptions are and where they came from. Because I'm not going to, I myself and, and any critical reader, you can't just buy into something because it sounds plausible. If you want to, you know, if you want to argue that the manuscript was written by a community of women in 15th century Italy, I'm, I could get behind that idea, but I need some proof. I need you to tell me not just that you think that's what it is, Tell me why you think that's what it is. Tell me what your evidence is and and don't base it on guesswork or wishful thinking. Right. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm always so careful when people ask me what I think it is to say what I think it might be, not what I think it is, because I have no idea what it is. I know what it isn't, but I don't know what it is. So I, I guess the last question to ask you then is, what do you think it might be? <laughs> That's a trick question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what I want it to be. How about that? Okay, that works. I'll tell you what I would wish it were. Whether it is that or not, I don't know. What I want it very much to be is to have been, to be passing along women's knowledge from one generation to the next. What I want it to be is a community of, of wise women who know things about herbs and who know things about medicine and who know things about the stars and are recording that knowledge to pass on to the next generation. That's what I would really like it to be. Uh, I have absolutely no evidence for that except my own fan fiction. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Uh, and I'm kidding. I don't actually write fan fiction about the Voynich, but there is some out there. Yes. <laughs> there is fan fiction about the Voynich manuscript. And some of it's really cool. There's some really cool sci-fi stories about it. And, you know, yeah. people people really run with it. Um, it, it really inspires people in, in really cool ways. So any, any last thoughts on the document? And I, I always often think of this as one of those great mysteries that it, it almost, as much as you want it to be solved, it almost would kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, take away from some of the, the power of that mystery, you know, like, because especially if it winds up being something just really benign, it's like somebody's shopping list in the, you know, <laughs> right. like, oh, man, <laughs> it's a that's shorthand right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's why it inspires all of these, these stories and, and inspires people because we, um, it is this, it is this example of something that in some ways it feels so familiar uh, it feels like you 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 know it when you look through it and you go, oh, I recognize that concept. I know what that looks like it means, but I can't read this text. I cannot make any sense out of it. And linguists have are approaching it from all sorts of really interesting and complex ways, trying to analyze the patterns. Uh, of the, the letter frequencies, the, the words, the paragraphs, at all these different levels, page level, trying to, to look for patterns and see if those patterns are reflected in known languages. That's the kind of linguistic work that's being done that's really exciting. Um, but I, 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 would be, I would be happy to know what it says. I think I, 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 don't, I don't want it to remain a mystery forever. I would be thrilled if somebody could come up with a solution that was really um, 
that was really convincing and that stood the test of time and that stood up to scrutiny and peer review. Um, you know, what happens now is people just throw their solution out there on the internet and people go, oh my God, another Voynich solution, yay. Um, without any critical, without any critical review. Uh, and that's, it's, it's important for something like this, that there is um, some kind of, um, of review process that happens to, to follow the argument and before, you know, before you put it out there to the world. Um, and that's, that's a real trick because Voynichologists don't like to be told they're wrong. <laughs> Very true. Uh, well, I will, I will keep my eyes peeled because if I see some solution that comes, uh, comes along and, and you put your stamp of approval on it, then I will know <laughs> that there's something we'll to see. it. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I love this manuscript. I really do. I, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Voynich. I think it's fascinating object. I love looking at it. I love, um, thinking about it and thinking about its story and it will be, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if we ever find, um, if we're ever able to actually read it. I hope it doesn't disappoint. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, is there anything uh, that you'd like to, uh, to pitch while you're on? Um, or any place uh, people no, can I go to? Just, I would just uh, invite <laughs> your readers to follow me on Twitter at Lisa F. Davis. Um, where I tweet not just about the Voynich, but also about medieval manuscripts and uh, various other things that catch my attention. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You we'll so much. Uh, appreciate you coming on. And uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, John. Take care. Is the Voynich manuscript written in a lost language? Is it a secret code that is yet to be cracked? Or is it just a complex hoax? For now, it remains a mystery. One that hopefully one day will be solved. But until then, we'll just have to hope that one day we'll discover the clue that explains just what this strange and fascinating document is. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I'll be back next week with a brand new mystery. Until then, if you enjoyed the podcast, consider telling a friend and leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media at the From the Void podcast to stay up to date. And don't forget to subscribe to ensure you never miss a new episode. I'll see you next time on From the Void. <laughs>